Um, you should now be able to hear me, which again is uh, is another blessing of doing these uh, of doing these sessions. Uh, let's just find out whether my mic is on. Yes, it's on. Uh, I've now got someone calling me. Hello. That's Dave Smirrell just wanting to tell me that my mic is off. So, uh, yes, my mic should be on now. Uh, that, was, uh, uh, that was evidence there of um, how steep the learning curve is for all of us uh, trying to do these online services. So thank you for bearing, thank you for bearing with me. Uh, what I said just then was to say thank you so much to Dean and to Ruth um, and to Mike for serving today. And, of course, it's not easy having to uh, do these online services at the drop of a hat. Um, and so we do the best we can to serve the Lord in these times. And um, I just want to say thank you for all of you uh, for enduring and, and for, for persevering in these times um, and for being faithful and still coming to church, even if that is just a click of a button and heading over to the church online page. It's still important to gather together, even if we can't be there in person. So I wanted to say thank you to all of you tuning in today and a big welcome uh, firstly to those who are at Hope City Church um, and also uh, to those, excuse me, um, also to those who are maybe visiting for the first time today. So a big welcome to all of you. Um, I hope you're well and you're most welcome to be with us today for service. Uh, we're in the book of First John. And we have been for around 16 weeks, so it's been quite the study. And this week, we are going to be in verses 11 to 18 of chapter 3. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, and we'll begin there. Before I start, I'm just going to, to pray. Father of lights, we thank you that every good and perfect gift comes down from you. And Lord, we thank you that this includes your word to us, which is both physical in the person of Jesus Christ and also written in the form of the Holy Scriptures. Lord, we thank you that your word to us in the Scriptures means that we have a record of who you are, in your own words, those words don't change. Uh, they are not subject to being twisted. Uh, but instead, Lord, they speak inerrantly and infallibly of you. And they don't change. So we have a sure foundation on which to base our, base our faith. And so, Lord, as we come to study your word today and we, we come to hear it together as a church, I'm praying that I, in my own weakness... Uh, would be able to present your word as it is without inserting my own opinions, which are not inerrant or infallible. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open ears and hearts to appreciate what's being said today through your Holy Scriptures. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. So let's read then First John chapter 3, verses 11 through to 18. I'm reading from the NASB. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we are to love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And for what reason did he murder him? 
because his own deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed out of death into life, because we love the brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life remaining in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But whoever has worldly goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain in him? Little children, let's not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Amen. Amen. So last time out, uh, which we were meeting up at the Forget Me Not Club, I kept you all here for well over an hour. Uh, today I'm going to do my best to let you go uh, around about half past three, all being well. Today we're looking, as I say, at verses 11 through 18 of First John. And this letter uh, itself, as we've talked about before, is essentially like an apostolic checklist for us to test to see whether we really are Christians or not. As we saw last week, there are numerous tests in 1 John right from the start through until chapter 5. We saw that there's the test of acknowledging sin. If we say that we have no sin, then the truth is not in us. So a Christian must be somebody who can acknowledge that they have a problem with sin. That maybe we're not losing that battle, but certainly that as Christians, we are not free uh, from daily battles with sin. And sometimes we stumble and fall and we need to be restored through forgiveness. There's also the test of right belief, which is knowing who Jesus is, uh, that this Jesus is the, the Holy One. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. Having a right belief about Jesus is another test of faith. The test of righteousness. If we say we're Christians, but we actually walk in the darkness and our deeds don't speak of our Lord Jesus Christ, but speak rather of the prince of the power of the air, of the devil, then we can't claim truly to be Christians. And now John is revisiting a test that he's actually spoken of earlier, which is the test of love. Now, as Bucky mentioned a few weeks back, sometimes John seems to cover old ground over and over, and over again, especially in this book. And you're often left thinking kind of, has he lost the plot? Like we've talked about this numerous times already. He's already said that. But we see actually that every time he returns to a subject, as he's going to do today in our passage, uh, he returns to it and he, he returns to it from a slightly different angle. And so that gives us a sort of slightly different look at the subject that he's treating. Uh, it's to give us like a fully orbed understanding of what's being said. Uh, that style of reasoning was common, actually, in the classical world, and it's called amplification. So he's not senile, he's not forgetting what he's already said, but he's coming at it from a different angle. Uh, in, in as much as we would now see it from a different angle, and we get a better understanding of what he's saying. And this passage here uh, starts the same way, actually, that he starts the letter. Uh, it's one of John's favorite 
figures of speech uh, in that he says, um, I want you to remember this is the message that you heard from the beginning. It's one of John's favorite figures of speech, but it also tells us something about the Christian message that I think is important not to miss. You see, it tells us this, that the Christian message is not forever changing. It remains the same. And over and over again, the Apostle John is calling these people that he's writing to, he's calling their attention back to what they heard in the first place, back to what they heard at first. The gospel, the essential facts of the Christian faith. And that is in stark contrast to the Greek world, to the pagan world, the world of religions, uh, of polytheism, um, of philosophers, in which John lived and which this group of Christians lived at the time. Luke, actually, in, in his gospel, not in his gospel, rather, in, in the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke, he tells us actually a little bit about the kind of world that John lived in. Uh, he says in Acts 17, verse 21, Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And it was into that kind of culture, that, that pagan culture, uh, that these false teachers that John mentions in 1 John had departed. They were interested in hearing something new. That was what they were excited about. Fresh teaching, fresh revelation, fresh understanding and conceptions. Now, instead of John writing to these Christians and then trying to give them his own fresh revelation, his own new teaching, his own new understandings, instead of trying to engage them um, on the platform of the Greek culture, he doesn't do that. Instead, he comes to them and he points their attention back to something old, to something that they'd heard from the beginning. That might sound a bit sort of tawdry and boring, these are the facts of Christianity. Christianity is built on facts. It's a religion that's built on facts and not theories. So the claims of people like Richard Dawkins, who would say that Christianity is a religion of blind faith, is missing something absolutely critical to the Christian faith. If we read, for example, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 to 18. He says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. For we are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's not true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So I want you to catch that there. Christ being raised from the dead is a fact. It's a historical claim. It's a fact about reality. Now, what Paul is saying is, if your faith is based on something which is not fact, then it's in vain. So the Christian faith is based upon actual historical events. It's based on facts. It's not based on belief, even if that belief is sincere. It's based on things that have actually happened. And so therefore, John, in writing to these Christians, 
doesn't try and present new ideas, but he calls them back to the basis of their faith, which is the facts of Jesus Christ, the facts of his death and resurrection, the facts of his personhood, that he's both God and both man, uh, the fact that he is the promised Messiah, and the facts of his commands, that Jesus left us with commands and a pattern of living. And so John is calling them back to those things that they heard at the beginning of their faith. When we engage with the world then as Christians, when we're talking to people out in the world who don't know Jesus yet, um, it's important to take on board what we see then in this letter, isn't it? That we don't engage with the world like the pagan culture that we live in. We don't come to the world with new ideologies, uh, fresh revelations that might seem more appealing uh, to the world. But instead, we're to engage the world with the same old gospel that was preached by the apostles at first. And this is also not only how we're to engage with the world, but it's also how we're strengthened. You see, the purpose of John writing this letter was actually to encourage these believers. We believe they were based in Ephesus at the time. The purpose of writing this letter was to encourage them, was to strengthen them, was to give them an assurance of their faith and in so doing, to point out that these people who are in their area trying to deceive them are in fact not Christians. So by hearing this same message that we heard from the beginning, uh, which is for them the gospel, uh, for us the gospel, uh, returning to the teachings that we've heard at first, returning to the gospel, is not only how we engage with the world, but it's how we're strengthened as believers not by reaching for something new, not for reinterpreting the scriptures in a way that maybe fits our worldview a bit better, but by returning to the gospel, by returning to these truths that we heard from the beginning and by living in them. In fact, Martin Luther said this, I think this is a great quote. He said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. And I think, I know personally for me, living by the gospel every day is something that has strengthened me time and time and time again. And it's this, it's the recognition that I'm not good, that I'm a sinner, that I need Jesus every day. Just the same as the first day that I put my faith in him, I need Jesus today as well. And it's his blood, it's his work on the cross, um, it's his obedience to the law that has brought me out of slavery to sin. Uh, and it's only in him that I have relationship with the father and so it's that constant remembering of the things that I knew at first that strengthens me and there's something that I think is so key for the church in this day and age is to get back in love with the gospel is to get back in love with the message that we heard at first and that and that is going to bring us strength that's going to bring us I think a keener witness for Jesus in the world that we live in because we'll be different from it we'll be countercultural, and that is uh, what it means ultimately to be the church to be salt and light in this world so when we read this passage what specific message is it that John's referring to when he says uh, from what you heard at the beginning well it's this it's that we should love one another he says that we should love one another and it's the same commandment, in fact, the same commandment of Jesus that John mentions back in 1 John chapter 2, when he says, Beloved, 
I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So this time John is returning to this discussion of love, love amongst brothers and sisters, love amongst Christians. And what he's doing is, first off, he's using two examples, a negative example and a positive example. He's going to put the case first in the negative uh, in verses 11 to 15, and then he's going to put it in the positive. So we first learn what love does not look like, then we learn positively what love does look like, what this real commandment from Jesus is supposed to be like. And this sort of argumentation is pretty common in the New Testament. Jesus and the apostles would often first put the case in the negative and then they put it in the positive. Um, and I think, again, uh, what can we learn from that? Well, it's just for me, it's to the glory of God that the Holy Spirit inspired these men to write the scriptures the way they did. You know, he used uh, fishermen and kings. He used scholars. He used warriors. But the Holy Spirit inspired each and every one of them to put together scriptures that would speak of God perfectly in a way that would relate to people that were going to be born 2,000 years later. It's just amazing. So for me, uh, the fact that we have this kind of amazing argumentation that helps us see both sides in our Bibles is more evidence that the scriptures are inspired and God breathed. Now, John chooses Cain. He chooses Cain as his negative example. Um, he's going to tell us how love doesn't look by using this person, Cain, that we read about in Genesis 4. So we're going to just read that briefly from Genesis 4, verses 1 to 11. Now, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying up to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So we're going to see how Cain was not his brother's keeper. Cain did a bad job of being a big brother. But we're going to see how Jesus and how ultimately we are to be our brother's and sister's keeper. How we're to see how Jesus did that for us. 
uh, his, his brothers uh, by the new birth and we're to follow after that example. So what makes Cain such a, a bad example of Christian love? Well, he doesn't start particularly well by killing his brother. Uh, that's not, not a good start. So <laughs> Cain is the first murderer in the Bible. Uh, he's the first to take another's life in, in all of human history, according to our scripture here. And so, in a sense, Cain is the father of murder. Um, he, he is, therefore, a kind of archetypal example of all who then commit that crime of murder. Everybody who does this is following after Cain. What drove Cain to kill his brother? Well, John says it's hatred. It was hatred that drove Cain to kill Abel. And we see, you know, that's maybe a strong way to put things, that uh, John says that anyone who lives in hatred uh, is a murderer. That's how he puts it. And maybe that sounds a bit brutal, uh, maybe a little bit uh, too simplistic. But um, does it necessarily mean that all who hate necessarily go on to kill? I don't think so. Um, we know that Jesus says in Matthew 5:28, I tell you, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, I think the point being here is simply that sin, and particularly Cain's sin of murdering his brother, it's never just random, you know, I, it doesn't just happen. And I think that's one of the excuses that you often find popping up in your heart when you're caught in sin, when you've done something wrong. Oh, it just happened. I just slipped. We instantly make an excuse as if it was random. You know, it just didn't, it wasn't in me. It just came from outside and poof, here we go. We've got this awful sin. Whereas according to the Bible, no, it, it came from inside you. The sin that you do existed in your heart before it, it ever came out. Um, so, for example, Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, verse 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. So, just as God says to Cain here in Genesis, these words are very powerful. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So we can take from that that we've got to acknowledge the sinfulness and the weakness of our own flesh. And with our minds, with our renewed minds, we've got to guard against the sinful desires that will crop up in our hearts. We've got to do what Proverbs 4.23 says, which is to guard our hearts with all diligence. We've got to take what Paul says in Romans 6, uh, was that we're not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Because although we receive a righteousness from God passively, like we didn't actively grab hold of God's righteousness, it was passively given to us through Jesus's activity. But once it's been given, we're actually supposed to actively fight sin. So there's both a passive part of the Christian lifestyle and there's an active part. And that's what we're talking about here is that there's got to be an active fighting against sin in our lives. Um, Cain murdered his brother because he hated him. Why did he hate him? Because Cain's deeds were evil and Abel's were righteous. Now, we know from Hebrews, uh, Cain's written about numerous times in the scriptures. And in Hebrews, it tells us that it was by faith that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. Abel's was offered in faith and 
Cain's was not. So we see that God is only going to accept that which is of faith. You see, Cain brought an offering. He brought an offering of his own free will. Uh, we don't know how great that offering was, how much it would have cost him. It was what he was supposed to do. He seemingly did something that was good, but God did not accept it. The fact is that there was no faith with Cain's offering. There was no righteousness in his heart, according to John. Um, and I think what we can draw from this is that there's a type of dead religion, actually, that, that's existent in the world that does things for God, thinking that God's going to therefore accept them because of what they're doing. But the fact is, God isn't pleased with anything but faith. Even if there are great works and there's no faith, he won't accept the offering. I think there's sadly going to be many on that great judgment day that stand before Jesus and say, but look at all I did for you. Look what I did with my life. Look at all the offerings I gave, the sacrifices I made. But he's going to say, away from me, I never knew you. In all our giving, in all our study, in all of our ways, do we love Jesus? That's the question. It's not necessarily whether what we're doing is necessarily uh, looks good. It's whether we love Jesus. It's what the condition and position of our heart is towards him. Do we trust him? Do we love him? Do we lean on Jesus for our salvation? Or are we sort of leaning half on him and half on our good works? Uh, unfortunately, no matter how much works we do, and uh, no matter how well we perform, it's never going to be good enough. Only faith pleases God. Cain's trust was in his own works, and they were rejected. They were rejected because of his hatred and of his e evil deeds. And I want to say this, is that the, the spirit of the Antichrist that was spoken about earlier on in this same book, that it's the same spirit that's operating in Cain. It's a spirit of hatred towards righteousness, a spirit of hatred towards God, ultimately. So what is this spirit of Cain? What does it look like in the world and how do we avoid it? Well, I think that it's going to look like a hatred of the true church of Jesus. It's going to look like a hatred of Christians. This spirit of Cain has to mock and to belittle, to crush Christians. Um, it's going to do all it can to make life a misery for the church. And this spirit is at large today, isn't it? Whether covertly, um, perhaps when you speak to somebody uh, who you respect as a nice person, somebody that uh, is friendly, but then the minute you talk about Jesus, they bristle and there's an anger and there's this side of them that you've never seen before. That's the spirit of Cain in operation. Uh, there's also the overt spirit of Cain, which we see in places like North Korea and China, where this oppression and hatred of Christianity is manifest in law. There's persecution. And that's why I think John says, don't be surprised if the world hates you, because the world is not neutral to God. The world is under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. And this spirit, this antichrist spirit of Cain is there. And therefore, we're going to see hatred in the world towards Jesus. And unfortunately, I think this, this same kind of Cain-like spirit can manifest itself in a withdrawal of love. You know, hatred in the Bible doesn't always look like murder, does it? 
sometimes hatred can be characterized as just a withdrawal of love. It's just not caring for people as you should. It's a denial of offering your services to somebody who, who needs them. And uh, right now, I actually, I think in the world, we're in a, in a place where I think that the enemy is wanting to sort of sow those seeds into Christians. The enemy's wanting for Christians to withdraw love from one another. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, the devil always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. And he encourages, to, encourages us rather to spend a lot of time thinking which is the worst. You see why? Of course. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite error. And I don't know about you, but I see this all the time. We see opposites, polar opposites, political, ideological in the world. And we see Christians being drawn out from the church, from their Christian worldview, to become partisan to one or the other. And then they fight each other based on the way they vote or what they believe is true about a particular, particular political situation. And this is something that I believe is absolutely Cain-like. It's what the devil wants. He wants for us as brothers and sisters in Christ to fight, to argue about things that are not ultimately scriptural. They're more political. They're more sociological. So how do we then get to see this example of what love really does look like? Well, sorry. Well, John uses the example of Jesus. Jesus essentially does the opposite from Cain. Where Cain came to take away the life of his brother, Jesus comes to give his life for his brothers. Jesus came to reveal the kind of brother that Cain should have been to Abel. He loved with a self-sacrificial love. He literally laid down his own life for his brothers and sisters rather than taking their lives like Cain did. And their lives, our lives indeed, were the rightful property of death. Did you ever think of that, that your life was the right, rightful property of death? Because of sin. As Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But death had no claim on Jesus. He'd never sinned. But he became sin and took all of our sin, all of my sin, on himself. And he died a death that was mine to die, was yours to die. Indeed, the eternal wrath of God was your inheritance and was my inheritance. It wasn't Jesus's, but as our older brother, he took the full wrath of God on, on the cross in our place. And so, whereas he inherited the wrath of God, which was rightfully mine, I now inherit his glory uh, through his perfect obedience to God uh, and my faith in that obedience, which is a gift of God, I now receive what belongs to Jesus. That's what a really good older brother looks like. And we also see this parallel again in Luke 15 when we see the parable of the, uh, the prodigal son or the prodigal God, as Tim Keller has called it, where the older brother again is being put forward by Jesus as an example of what the Pharisees are doing. The younger brother being the sinful wayward son uh, is run away and the older brother ultimately should go and rescue the younger brother, shouldn't he? But instead, he stands back, he waits, he complains, he doesn't join in the party. 
Jesus again shows us what the good older brother looks like. He comes and rescues us in our sin instead of hanging back and letting us get our just desserts. So if we're to follow Jesus' example in conclusion, does that mean that we need to go and find another Christian and literally lay down our life for them and get martyred? Well, I don't think so, because just as following Cain doesn't necessarily look like murdering somebody, the example of following Jesus doesn't look like literally dying for a brother or sister in Christ. But it does look like dying to self. It does look like dying to yourself. And what does that look like in the context of a relationship? Well, I think it looks like laying your life down. You know, there's that picture of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and everybody's out on the streets and they're laying palm leaves down so that he can walk over them. I think that's a kind of similar situation with us is that we lay our lives down. We, we lay those things that we hold dear down, our um, privileges maybe, our um, comfort, our um, convenience. We, we lay those things down in order to provide brothers and sisters with a way to live. I think it's the same as Jesus in uh, laying his glory by, that Jesus forewent the worship that he had in heaven from the angels, from all those beings up there. He stepped down into the world, he took on flesh and humbled himself even to become subject to people he created uh, in order to save you and I. That's the kind of self-sacrificial love that we're talking about. I'm going to read from Philippians 2 verses 1 to 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is in yours Christ, which is yours rather in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, in this state of affairs right now in our world, it can become so easy to forget these simple commands to love one another to love brothers and sisters in christ and also not to get stuck up into little silos into little echo chambers where we actually begin to forget who we are we begin to forget what god made us to be and we begin to turn our ideological enemies into monsters it's so easy to do that whereas we ought to be, first and foremost, aware of our own sinfulness, aware of our own need of grace every day. 
And I think in a sense at this time, more than ever, there is a call to kind of be in the world but not of it. Be in the world but not of it, as Jesus talks about in John's Gospel. That we have to step back. There has to be a step back from certain things that are happening in culture, certain um, perhaps uh, fights that are raging, not to stop being a voice of truth. Uh, we still need to be there to do that, but not to get into a place where we so identify with a particular political body or cause uh, that we turn everyone who doesn't agree with that into a monster, even our own brothers and sisters in Christ. Believe you me, the temptation to do that is real. And I think we need to be very careful not, not to do that. In fact, there's a quote from Jonathan Edwards, who is a Puritan preacher, that I think really speaks into this situation, which I'll read and then pray to finish. He says this, However wrong you may think others have been, Maintain with great diligence and watchfulness a Christian meekness and gentleness of spirit and labor in this respect to excel those who are of a contrary spirit. And this will be the best victory. For he that rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. Let nothing be done through strife or conceit. Indulge no vengeful spirit in any case, but watch and pray against it. And never think you behave yourselves as becomes Christians, except when you sincerely, sensibly, and fervently love all men of whatever party or opinion, and whether friendly or unkind, just or injurious to you or your friends, or to the cause and kingdom of Christ. And I think that is true. I think that if that's true of our attitude towards all men, then how much more? to our own brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's not love one another in word because words are cheap. We can say, I love you, I bless you, but do we really love with deed and action as Jesus did, that it presented itself, it manifested itself physically, it looked like something. It wasn't just parlance, it wasn't sentiment, it was real. Are we prepared in these times to give of ourselves for our brothers and sisters in Christ, where we see a need to say, rather than I'll wait for someone else to meet that need, say, what, what can I do? What can I do now? Can I contact that person? Can I reach out? Can I help do their shopping? Um, can I check in and, and just make sure that they've got everything they need? What can we do physically? What can we do practically to demonstrate the love that we are uh, full, we're filled with ultimately for our brothers and sisters in Christ and that's the challenge today so I'm going to finish in prayer Lord God I pray that as we hear this word today that though it may make us feel convicted in many ways that perhaps our love for our brothers and sisters isn't quite as strong as it should be um, that by your Holy Spirit we wouldn't feel condemnation. We, we wouldn't feel um, ground down to dust like we, we've got no hope. But instead, uh, we'd be inspired by this word to ask the question, how can I love more like Jesus? How can I love people more like Jesus in these times? How can I be a better brother? How can I be a better sister to my family in Jesus Christ? What can I do to represent Jesus in this church family, in Hope City Church, 
um, what, what can I do to serve him in these times? And Lord, we ask forgiveness for those times when perhaps we have been a little bit Cain-like, where we have uh, been angry uh, towards a brother, brother or sister in Christ, and perhaps we've withheld forgiveness because we've been hurt. Lord, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would bring a sense of peace and comfort and healing uh, in those hearts, Lord God, in our hearts for times that perhaps we have lashed out, we've been angry. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us the grace not only to be healed, but also to forgive and to be lovers of one another, be lovers that will follow Jesus' example and give of ourselves for one another. In Jesus' name, amen.